Let's spend the next 45 minutes or so painting a picture, shall we? You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. We're about to paint that picture with words, and I can think of no one better to help us than Bo Bartlett, an accomplished artist, Columbus native, and just all-around good guy. Bo, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Chuck. Happy to be here. Uh, you, you are, when I think of Columbus does amazing, you're one of the things <laughs> that I would put on the amazing list. Uh, you really have lived this life that started as a young kid in high school that drew, and you have now become a nationally, internationally acclaimed artist selling your works all over the world. So how do you get from point A to point B? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I grew up right here. I'm in a block from here. I mean, my house, my childhood home, which I still live in, is right here on 15th, so a block away. And I remember when there was nothing here at all. I mean, this was a forest. Uh, WRBL was here, and Joy Nursery was down there, and my house was at the end of a dead end. 15th didn't cut through. So... um, this was my whole playground. This was my roaming uh, backyard, which there were springs in it. There were iguanas and wildlife, and there was a, it was a wild place to grow up. At some point along the we're way, we're talking the nineteen sixties, nineteen sixties, yeah, fifties. We moved there in fifty seven or fifty eight, I think. My parents did, and, and before that, the home had been um, the mayor's house, uh, Ed, Ed Barry's house, oh. C. Ed Barry, who was my uncle. Oh, wow. My dad bought it from my uncle. And then um, at some point, the woodruffs uh, started to tear the, fiel- the the woods down and it turned into a field, and uh, so a grassy field. And that was like that just for many years through the 60s. And um, so I, I would play out there and play in the field. And I remember walking down the dirt road that connected my house to WRBL. That was just a dirt road. And um, walking along that trail and coming down and watching the Roselle show be filmed in, uh, on the weekend mornings. Uh, Roselle, the, wow. it was a TV show back yeah, then. Yeah, many, many people. Roselle was not a TV show. It was the TV show in Columbus, Georgia. Yeah, and I didn't know, that, I mean, I was young, so I didn't know the difference between national TV and local TV. So, you know, to me, it was like the epicenter of, of, you know, entertainment. And I'd come down and watch them film it. They'd film it outside in the summertime. And, uh, you know, Doug Wallace was here, and uh, it made me want to be a weatherman. It made me very aware of the weather, because he also drew, you know, he drew his little cartoons, smiley faces of the sun and stuff. And uh, Colonel Chick and um, Bozo, that that show, you know. And I remember when they built Nicholson Terrace over here, uh, when they were building it, it was under construction. And my brother and I went, and we started climbing along the the, uh, cinder block walls, about three or four stories up. And I remember people from WRBL being upset about it. They were, like, looking out, like, these kids, you know, (laughs) what are they doing? Because we were pretty wild. We set fire to the field. And we we were, you know, we had a wild youth, you know. And, And But then, you know, like, a week later, Colonel Chick and, and Bozo, were, they, they went up there and started doing the same thing. They did a skit up there on the, on the cinder block, third floor up. Very precarious, very dangerous. So um, this, this, and my very first job was here, actually. Um, when I was 18, I'd come back from Florence and got married. I was getting ready to have a son, my first son, Will. And uh, I got a job here at the, at the uh, TV, TV station, WRBL. I was back in the back doing artwork. I was doing the logo and painting little pictures of the logo and the local characters. So you can draw the CBSI, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I used to draw the eye. Yeah. 
somewhere around here there's some pictures better than I did when I was 18. They're unearthing a lot of that right now. There's a spring cleaning of epic proportions going on in this building. And I will start keeping an eye. I would love to find a vintage Bo Bartlett back there. You, they should be there. If they kept them, they're there. Um, you know, the Jeff, the Jeffersons, all in the family, all those. I did actual drawings of all those uh, TV characters. What would, a, what would a Bo Bartlett Archie Bunker be worth today? <laughs> right? right? Oh, man. <laughs> wow. Uh, I think I'm going to go by and start helping them throw stuff out. <laughs> hey, I'll take this one. Put this that one in my car. Um you know, I want to talk about Columbus a little bit, but you could paint and live anywhere in the world. You live in two places. You live in Columbus. You and your wife, Betsy, live in Columbus, and you live in a, on an island, what, 27 miles? Is that right? Yeah. Yep. 27 miles off the main coast during the summer. Why, why did you choose to, to, to keep your roots here? A couple of things. Uh, firstly, you don't really ever own an island. I mean, sure, we, we in, legally we own it. But in reality, you realize when you, when you purchase a big piece of land like that that's unto itself, that really um, you're just a steward. You're, and and it, it, it's humbling. Uh, and we're out there in nature. We're out there with the rough seas and the winds and the you know the rising tides. It's a ten foot tide uh, twice a day, and you get into the balance, uh, kind of balance with nature, and it's it's a teacher. It really is. And so you, <clears throat> basically, it's humbling because you realize that you're you're um, you, what you what you do is you just realize that you're. Um, just there for a short time. You're the one who's stewarding that island until you pass. The island will continue to be there. The whales around it will be there. The seagulls will be there. The seals. Somebody owned it before you. Somebody owned it after. Exactly. Yeah. And you're just, it's a place you get to go and you've paid for that right. But you don't own the land. You know, the land is God's or nature's or something, you know, and, and you just get to live there. And so there's <clears throat> a kind of awareness that comes from that and an appreciation that comes from that. Um, and secondly, uh, in terms of coming back to Columbus, there were a lot of reasons for us to come back to Columbus. I'd lived away for uh, 30 years. I'd lived away, uh, actually more than that, almost 40 years, from the time I was 18 until um, I lived 30 years in Philly and 10 years in Seattle. And so um, my parents were getting older, and I realized that it would be good for me to be nearby. And so they've both passed now. Um, but also opening the Bo Bartlett Center uh, was we sort of needed to be here to spearhead that. And um, that was the brainchild of my brother-in-law, Otis Scarborough. And so we've, uh, you know, we showed up to, to help uh, that vision come to fruition. Um, but one of the things that I like to say in one of my, my sayings uh, that I often tell my students is, um, let your root feed your crown. And that's a Robertson Davies quote from the Cornish Trilogy, I think. And and what it's really talking about when you talk about let your root feed your crown is that everything that you are, every uh, your DNA, your family, your history, your ancestors, and all of your experiences, let that flow through you and be like the, the roots, but let it flow through you and be like the trunk of the tree and then let it be the thing that informs your artwork or whatever your creative outlet is and be like the foliage or the fruit or the flowering uh, of the tree. So let your root feed your crown means um, to 
be true to who you are, where you're from, because everybody has different experiences. Everybody has a different story to tell. And what's important is to be true to your own temperament and your own experience. And, and that's where you, you're going to be original if you do that, um, because there's no other you. We're all unique individuals. In our own way, we are. You know, one of the interesting things to me about Columbus, and it's something I didn't notice younger, but I certainly notice it now. We have some of the most beautiful sunrises. You know, I live downtown, and that sun coming up out of the east is just, it's a really magnificent light. And it's equally, if not more so, magnificent when it goes to bed in the west. Um, You have painted all over the world. Describe the light in Columbus. Um. The light's different everywhere. So every situation, every city, every town, every you know mountain and plain has different light. To me, uh, the light in Columbus is the most beautiful light in the world. The way the light in the afternoon comes across Alabama, across the Chattahoochee River, because of trucks that drove down ruddy, red, dusty roads in Alabama, it stirs up a kind of iron oxide in the atmosphere. And then as the sun gets lower, there's a kind of wonderful, warm, pink quality to the light that's different than other places. Um, And that's the light that I grew up sitting on the hill here, uh, watching the sunset every afternoon. That's the light that informed who I am and how I, what my worldview is and how my, what my vision of the, of the world is visually. And so I, um, I really value that light. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this center here, like we could have chosen to do the Bo Bartlett Center in different places, was because I wanted people to be able to come here and experience that light and see uh, the wonder of this place. What do other artists tell you when they may come from a different part of the nation or the world? And they're seeing, I mean, you know, this isn't New Mexico, but they're seeing our light and for the first time. What do they tell you about the light that projects into their work. Yeah, well, without, without fail, you know, people are drawn to the light. And, and Columbus is in a unique place, and I, I don't know exactly how or why geo, geologically this is the way it is, but because often uh, you, you may realize this, but weather patterns go just to our south or just to our north, and it has to do with the fall line. Um, and weather that's being created down in the Gulf of Mexico um, you know, you can see it here in Columbus. When we shot Things Don't Stay Fixed here, I, I told the uh, uh, assistant director, I said, you know, just, just watch, you know, like you watch the weather. We'll have, we'll be clear here in Columbus. We'll, be, we'll have a good day to shoot because the weather's going to go to the south. You'll see the clouds down there or to the north. Mm-hmm. And it does. It sort of, it sort of splits here. And, um, and so when people come and they come from all over the country to, to visit Columbus, they're often amazed at how you know, the, the beautiful quality of the light. And, People often say, you know, like, I could live here. You know, this is a great place. And that, that's one of the goals, is to be able to, to uh, build a creative community here. There is a creative. There's always been artists here, whether it were Nordhausen or if you look back, Columbus has always attracted people that are art, artistic. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Um, well, it's a vortex in a way. I think a lot of times you you don't know exactly what the magic of a place is. Um it's, it's one of those things that you just have to feel. 
Um, and I go places all around the world. Sometimes I can paint somewhere and sometimes I can't. I'll, I'll go and I'll say, this is a beautiful place. I can paint here. But just the energy isn't flowing out of the ground in the appropriate way. You know, you just can't muster the, uh, the creative impulse. It might look beautiful, but it doesn't, you don't feel it. And that's, you know, and I've been many places. And sometimes I, I just get somewhere and I say, oh, yeah, I can really paint here. It's just like it flows right out. Um, and sometimes you have to sort of work at it to get it to, to flow. But uh, Columbus is a place where um, the work has always flown naturally for me, and I think it does for other creatives. And it's a combination of a lot of elements. There's, and there's a lot of uh, not just visual, the visual world, but you know, it is a uh, melting pot in a lot of ways. There, it, there's a, it's a, a cross-cultural. There's a lot of uh, fodder uh, from which to draw uh, historically and uh, you know, just the diversity and so these things are all um, a part of uh, any creative community. And you look, I mean, another artist, I think it flows well here. If you look at some of Bruno Zupan's work out of here, I mean, I've seen some of his river work and some of his late bottom work, and it's the light. It, you know, yes. it's fun. It's fun. I'm not an artist. Never. I did, I did win a statewide art show, though, uh, as a junior in high school with the, uh, never mind. We, no, that's we, we digress. Better than I did. I didn't win any of those things in high school. I'll trade you right now. I'll give you my ribbon if you'll if you'll give me your portfolio. I'll take your ribbon. Uh, you know, art is about expression. Whether whether it be performing art, music, or you know, visual art like what you do, we all want to express ourselves. Is yours a combination, is yours a God-given talent, an acquired talent, or a combination? Um, it's, it's a combination. Uh, it's nature and nurture and uh, some will, I think. Um, because of just the time I grew up in. I mean, you know, like I'm a baby boomer, uh, you know, for better or for worse. And... Um, there weren't many artists here in town when I was young. I mean, there were a few, you know, and I did go visit those when I was young. I, I would go visit uh, Wendell Taylor and Barbara Pound, and uh, and Bruno was came to Brookstone when I was there. And what about uh, Bausch? Is it? Am I getting that yeah, right? Yeah, Jerry Bausch was uh, a teacher of mine. Actually, he was one of my few actual teachers. I went and studied with him one summer uh, up on Winton next to the museum, and uh, he had studied with Picasso. You know, been, I've got a Picasso light Bausch that hangs in our art when they sold all of his works that were in an apartment over there on Country Club Road. Right, they exactly. sold all got, that stuff. We got some, too. Yeah, it, but it's it's bulls and very you know, Spanish flavor to it. Yes. Yeah, well, he did study it. He studied with Picasso in the south of France. So, um, you know, that's, that's a true uh, connection there with that Cubist kind of work. Um, but anyway, so I, I just, I studied... I, I went and, and spent time with those people so I could sort of like try to absorb what an artistic... Uh, temperament was and and how you could possibly survive in it and make a living at it and what were the what were these people doing and um, who was your mentor I mean I know but I'm going to ask first who was the person who was the master that you studied at the knee of um, I had several so these were influences when I was young, and and so from from there when I was when I was at Brookstone, my uh, one of my English teachers gave me a book. My name is Asher Lev, 
and I've mentioned that to you before, I think, that My Name is Asher Lev was a book behind Potok about a Hasidic Jewish boy who wanted to be creative and make art, but whose tradition didn't want him to do that. So I was, you know, raised very religious here in, in Columbus, the, uh, the Baptist Church, and uh, my parents were very religious early on. And so um, I had to sort of like try to break it, find a way to break out of that in order to... Uh, find my own voice. And one of the teachers at Brookstone realized that this book might be helpful. And in the story, uh, it's a, you know, fictional story. It's a novel. Uh, Asher goes to Florence to study. So that's what I did. I, I read the book and thought, well, I'll do what he did. You know, I didn't know what else to do. We're not talking and, about North Alabama either, right? Nope, yep, <laughs> Florence, Italy. And so I, you know, I went and, um, and so there, when I was there, I met Ben Long, my teacher, uh, Ben Long, who taught me how to draw. He was a North Carolina uh, vet, a vet from Vietnam. And he was there studying with Pietro Anagoni, the uh, great Italian fresco painter. So I uh, studied with Ben, met Anagoni, and then came back here. And then I, I moved after that uh, with my wife and child to, um, to Philadelphia. And because I was trying to find an American master that I could study with, and I studied there with, I wanted to study with Andrew Wyeth initially, but instead, I, I studied with uh, Nelson Shanks, who was the great American portrait painter. <clears throat> uh, later, I did study with, with Wyeth, or I spent uh, many years with Wyeth, five years making a film, Snow Hill, and then uh, the rest of our lives until he passed away. We were best friends, so um, it, I, I did learn a lot from him. What I, the, the way it worked was I learned to draw from Ben Long, I learned to paint from Nelson Shanks, and I learned why to do those things from Andrew Wyeth. We can all have talents. Is the why the most important part, piece of the puzzle when you look at your talents? Do you need to understand why you're doing it? Well, Ben Long used to say, he used to say, um, patience and will. Patience e volante, I think was the Italian. I mean, was the. Say Italian. that again? Patience e volante. Was the patience e volante. Yeah, so it's patience and will. It's what it takes to. to achieve anything. Um, uh, but Nelson would say, you know, he was about just about putting paint down. You know, he was a portrait painter. He would say, you know, painting's easy. He put the right color in the right place. You know, it was very matter of fact about it. Whereas uh, Andrew Wyeth was, uh, your art goes as deep as your love goes. So it's really about um, expressing yourself. So when, when you have a, a little bit of a gift. I had a little inkling to draw when I was young. But my father drew all the time. He was making furniture. He was in the Columbus Fixture Manufacturing Company with his father. And my brother and sister drew. You know, back then there wasn't an internet. There wasn't, and there was a little bit of TV, but we didn't watch it very often. And um, so I watched those around me, and I wanted to do what they were doing. So I was just mimicking them. I, I didn't have a, as much talent as my brother or my sister, but I... I wanted to pursue it and when I was 18 and I didn't have many other choices um, I mean I could have gone and been a weatherman or I could have been a, um, uh, a clown in this in the circus or the fair um, or I wanted to maybe be a preacher I mean all those things weren't as realistic as the fact that I could use my gift to to uh, pursue the arts and I knew it was a long shot but at the time I was just so young and ignorant that I didn't know uh, that that you couldn't survive in the arts, and so when you it, get it up, was will. You, a lot of it was will. I really willed um, uh, in a kind of manifestation way. I kind of willed uh, a, a goal. I threw a goal out there, 
and I, I worked toward it uh, every single day. And so when I was young in, in Philadelphia, living in Philadelphia, I would work 18-hour days uh, at painting. Wow. that's You know, you just said something that struck me. You said ignorant. And, you know, you're a little older than I am. I'm 61. But I look back now and wish I had some of that youthful ignorance. Youthful ignorance is a wonderful thing. Yes, and also what I was speaking about was, you know, the time in which I grew up really affected as a baby boomer because my father was into uh, uh, um, Norman Vincent Peale. Oh, wow. Yeah, my father was into Norman Vincent Peale. And so he had, you know, the power of positive thinking, and you can if you think you can. And when I would get in trouble when i do something uh, that was, uh, instead of being put on restriction or... Uh, being punished, he would give me one of these books and say, you have to read this. And so that's what I did. So, I mean, I was raised in that kind of like um, goal setting, you know, just very structural way of achieving what you want to achieve. And that made a, a, a big difference, I think. Uh, it was just part of the mix. And sometimes I'm sort of embarrassed about it, but it is, it is a part of uh, the mix that we have to get our mind right. Do y'all still meet as a group of artists locally and draw? I know y'all have done that for years. That Gary Pound's in yep. it. Um, do y'all still do that? Yeah, there are several uh, drawing classes that are ongoing. Uh, Gary Pound has one in his studio Friday morning. So there's a uh, monthly uh, drawing under the skylights at the Bo Bartlett Center. And that brings in prof- the artists that are working professionally here. Is that is that a collective, collaborative I mean, because if you look at the artist in town, and, I, and oh, I'm going to get in trouble when I say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. The spectrum starts with Butch Anthony, goes through the Bunny, what's Bunny's last name? The Ensman. Ensman to the Gary Pounds, and then works its way to the Bo Bartlett's, those <laughs> who pans. But you run through this whole spectrum of artists here with, Butch Anthony being on one end and you being you being at the other, but somehow that quilt works when you look at all the different personalities and talent that's here. Would you? I mean, there's more art, artistic talent here than people realize, isn't there? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, and that that's the thing. I mean, because it's it's not a hierarchy first to understand. I mean, it's the, there might be ends of a spectrum, but it's not that one color in the spectrum is any better than another color in the spectrum. You know, it's all just the spectrum of, of uh, just like the rainbow. And so we're all coexisting, and uh, it's but it's not hierarchical. But you haven't taken a Butch Anthony piece and intertwangled it. Butch has taken a Bo Bartlett piece and intertwangled it, if, <laughs> if that makes sense, right? But I do have Butch Anthony pieces in my house. So You um, do? Yeah, yeah. So they, he's, uh, he's amazing. He's the real deal. He is, and Butch is a folk artist down in Seal, and he's probably the closest thing I've ever met to a savant. Mm, right. I mean, that just that's my take, and if Butch is offended by that, I apologize, Butch. Sorry, Butch. Um, but how – I'm going to get to the second half of this, but I'm going to ask a very simple first half of the question. How do you do what you do? Is there a process? How do you do what you do? Well – there is a saying that, uh, you know, a, a great artist is a great person painting. So it's a very holistic approach that I take. 
And that's, you know, having studied uh, some philosophies, uh, Ken Wilber, um, you know, there is a, a holistic approach to um, uh, living. And so you have to live life and you have to live it in a kind of balanced way in order, because everything needs to be geared toward making the, the artwork. So, um, you know, I have uh, in my painting manual the, the, the ten do's. And the ten do's are basically things like, you know, hydrate, eat right, exercise, um, you know, have a meditation or prayer practice, um, learn all you can about your uh, primary interests, make art, and, uh, and you know, love. You know, these things are things that you have to focus on every single day and make sure you get each one of those things taken care of every day. So I, I wake up uh, first thing in the morning and I write. I've kept a journal since I was 18. And um, so I write exactly, you know, I've gotten to the point where I trust myself. So I write exactly what I'm thinking, exactly what I'm not. It's not for some publication in the future. It's for me to know where I am. And I'll write down the dreams I had last night. I'll write down what I did yesterday, what I have coming up today. And it's a process. And, and you documented your life. My, my whole life since I was 18. So everything's in the journals. And those journals are at the center. Uh, many of them. that they, The rest of them will be. Um, and so, but what, what you do by writing it down, you learn to trust yourself. So you trust the instinct. So you trust, say, you know, I'll say, I had a dream last night of, you know, of a cow uh, on a raft. And uh, so I'll do, might even do a little sketch of it. And then I'll hold on to that. And I have a sketchbook, you know, right here in my my pack filled with drawings and sketches and ideas that are all percolating all at the same time. And then uh, uh, the time will come when they will sort of come ter to term and they'll come to fruition and you'll realize that it's, they're getting ready to come out into the world. And it'll be based on what's going on in the world as well. So it's an inner outer kind of experience that you're, that you're living. And then you'll, maybe you'll have some people to pose or you'll have, you know, you'll go out with a camera and find the subject matter and you'll piece it together with small drawings. You'll draw from life uh, do a small study, and then from that study, do a larger painting. And those paintings, um, you know, build upon themselves and go out into the world, and they're parts of exhibitions. And uh, But it's it's always about trying to f do an image, for me, that's like a mise-en-scene in a film, which which is like, in a, in a film lingo, that means do an image that represents the whole idea of the thing. So for me, I'm trying to express what it feels like for me to be alive, um, and that changes with time based on what's going on in life and uh, the uh, obstacles or, or um, difficulties that we face. But art is about sublimation. It's really about getting down the feelings that you're experiencing uh, onto a, into a place, whether that's music, poetry, writing, painting, filmmaking. Uh, filmmaking. And you get that feeling down and you get it into it and then that thing exists and, and you can go on and, and live free and let, let the energy of the world and the energy of the universe continue to flow through you because you've gotten down your feelings uh, about it. Do you do your best work in pain or joy? Um, I don't know if one is better than the other. I mean, we certainly have, uh, we have periods of angst and difficulty and struggle. We all... We all have suffering, um, and then you have moments of extreme uh, um, exaltation, and I think that the combination of those two things are part of what art is. And uh, you don't want, but even in a single image, you'll have you'll run the gamut because you're not just doing it in one afternoon. I, my paintings for me can take a month, six months, so you you experience all those feelings in during the. So process. they're done during a roller coaster ride. 
Yeah, you're you're feeling all those feelings uh, all the time, and so you you put everything in. So so that's why they're sort of, uh, for me, with <coughs> with my paintings, uh, there's a kind of complexity of feelings when you look at it, and and sometimes it takes a takes a hit, takes a moment for you to say, okay, like I'm feeling some of this, you know, because it's not, I mean, I don't say it's not Rockwellian and a in a negative way, Rockwell was an amazing storyteller and a great illustrator. Uh, but usually when you see it, you get it. You know, it's like, there's the story, you know. There's the the boy finding the Santa Claus suit, you know. It's like you, you get it right away, what he's talking about. Whereas in mine, there's a little... Or the slow, guys at the diner. Or the guys at the diner with the woman the woman sitting uh, with her grandson at the diner. But so you, you get those right away, which is a good, strong hit, which is, I mean, he was a genius. Uh, but for me, it's a little slower reveal and uh, it's sort of like Rockwellian in a way, uh, stylistically, but then it's turned on its head so that you're sort of more psychology. And although he's got plenty of psychology. All of all of the painters that, that you know, I've looked at their stuff, Rockwell felt more like a journalist writer than anybody else because it was a story. It was a very specific story. What was the barbershop kid? I mean, you, you can remember some of the scenarios, and I, I wish I had done some research on this, but he felt more like a writer than some painter, than some artists do. Is that is that a fair assessment, or it, is it, that me being, trying to be a cheap art critic? No, it's hard to realize now because times are so different, but uh, the illustrators were the most important um, uh, visual artists of the day. So N.C. Wyeth's paintings of, uh, you know, Robinson Crusoe or, or um, Last of the Mohicans, you know, these illustrations were, uh, people didn't have movies back then. This was pre, pre-movie. So these were the things that ignited people's imagination. And so they were very powerful people, these illustrators, like uh, Maxwell Parrish and N.C. Wyeth and um, uh, Norman Rockwell. And Rockwell was the, the pinnacle of that, really, because, you know, then... Uh, he was still doing paintings for you know um, Saturday Evening Post and eventually Life and Look, but I think that you know you have to realize that how how they really shaped the narrative and their ability to funnel what was going on in the world and to sh- to shape the narrative for people, and that was how we formed our worldview, much like movies do today. Wouldn't you love to see Rockwell come back for one day and see what that work would be? In two thousand twenty twenty two, what you know, what he would see as his slice of American life. I'm guessing Rockwell would probably be a filmmaker now, and not an artist, not a painter. I'm guessing. Yeah, and that's probably that's probably that's probably fair. What, what if you were a filmmaker? Would he be Spielberg? <laughs> I, no, I'm thinking more on the other end. Um, I'm thinking. Uh, uh, God, I just went brain dead. Who's um, on the other end of Spielberg? Uh, no, no, not other end. The um, No Country for Old Men. Um, uh, the Cohen Brothers. Yeah, the Cohen Brothers. I'm thinking more Cohen Brothers. Okay, all right. I'm thinking Cohen Brothers are to me are the are are the. I mean, I mean Spielberg's epic. Yes, and I guess Rockwell was epic if you look at he it. He was. I think he was. He was epic in this. He was at the very top of his game. Um, and I think that in a way, I don't know who else is, but I mean, uh, 
Spielberg's as gifted as, as anyone in terms of that, in, in terms of the sort of the Americana of it. Um, but, but, you know, we live in a very different world now. So, you know, I, I don't know that, um, I don't know, you know, Jordan Peele or somebody might be touching the, 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 the chord of, uh, you know, the, of, of what's on, on people's mind. We do live in a different world, but many of the issues of that time, race, political divide, McCarthyism, many of those issues may have a little different tint, but they're still issues. Mm-hmm. Well, Rockwell didn't cover those until very late in his life. For the most part, he was delving into a kind of nostalgia about the way he wanted life to be. And then uh, after he married uh Mary, I believe was her name. She was a librarian in, uh, in Stockbridge. Uh, that's when he really, she was more open-minded and more to the left, and that was when he began to paint, you know, the, the problems we all live with and um, Ruby, Ruby Bridges and those paintings of, of uh, you know, Mississippi justice and Southern justice and those paintings. A lot of those paintings were done very late in life, and they really, uh, they were a turn for him and to, to being more socially minded. Social issues creep up in your work. Can I mean, if you're an artist who's true to his or herself, will the social issues of the day show up in your work eventually? Um, hopefully they do. Hopefully every artist is of their time in that regard, but you can't force it. So uh, you have to be true to your temperament. So I think every painting for me has to have a kind of personal aspect. So it's set right here on the field or the grassy field of my of my childhood home and it has to have a kind of um, larger worldview or political aspect and it has to have a um, a religious or spiritual aspect so these things are an art historical aspect so these things are all part of what goes into every single painting and so you have to uh, and they're sort of need to be in somewhat in balance what you, you don't want is the work that is a kind of uh, propaganda or anything that is uh, showing a worldview that is um, um, influenced. It's, it's, it's subjective. You know, you, have to, you want to keep trying to stay objective. And so that's where drawing from your own experience perhaps is, uh, is the truest uh, way to approach that. Because my experience you know, growing up in the South, sitting in the grass there, it's going to be very different from someone growing up in the Bronx, you know, riding a train with subway uh, with graffiti on it. You just Absolutely. have two different. I want to try an experiment world, here. Worldviews, two different worldviews. I want to talk about this. Is one of your paintings when I think of Bo Bartlett's work. But when you look at this this work, what? When did you do that? And what? I mean, tell me what you're saying there. A guy with a dunce cap. With red, with red candy striped pants, leading an entourage. What are you saying there? What was the era of that work? Well, actually, yeah, this was one that was more uh, probably came out of a more joyous, joyous time in a lot of ways. Um, there was, <clears throat> but there are levels to it. So, the guy in the front uh, references uh, Norman Rockwell uh, flying um, Uncle Sam. There's a famous. Uh, portrait of Uncle Sam with striped pants like that, that Norman Rockwell did. And um, then the other, and he, he's also the fool. So this is, these are figures out of the tarot card deck. So each one of these figures is a, is a different, one of the major arcana of the te- tarot deck. There are also uh, 
slightly symbolic of the the world powers. So each one is a different one of the different major uh, you know countries in the in the continents for uh, that are the nuclear powers, the world powers. So it's it's, it's called Dreamland. They're all traipsing along. The fool, the bride, the magician, uh, the high priestess, they're all traipsing along across a hill uh, towards some unknown goal. And and that's where it's a little like the painting by Bruegel, uh, the, the blind leading the blind. So you're not sure. They're all sort of following the fool. Do we know where he's going or not? The fool in the tarot deck is both the highest and the lowest um, uh, figure in the major arcana. So he's, he's both sort of the fool who's traipsing along and... People are following him. We don't know quite if he knows where he's going or not. Um, but that's you see the self-portrait as the fool. Um, that's yes. relevant in today's times now. I mean, if you look at what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening with our world, I mean, you've kind of foreshadowed that a little bit there, didn't you? Hopefully paintings are, t- even though they're of their time, they're also timeless. In an ideal world, you do a painting and, and it, it speaks across generations and across uh world uh, events, current events of the day. So, yes, hopefully it does speak to... Uh, you don't do a painting just thinking, you know, this is going to be something that you express right this minute. That uh, it's, it's a balance of you're looking in the past and you're drawing from everything that's happened before. You're experiencing your own feelings in the moment, but you also are projecting it out into the future so that you have a finished result that in the future will be palatable. You can't know all the things that it would mean to people but you can, up to that moment, you can know what all those things could mean to a person because everything changes. Like um, Everything does change. It constantly is changing, and you don't know what everything is going to mean in the future, and that's one of the tricky parts for an artist. And so, you know, in a way, as a figurative painter, it's extremely difficult right now. I mean, I'm not like, woe is me or anything, but it's like because there's gender issues, there's race issues, um, you know, like... We can look at that image and, and relate to it right away, but someone else with a completely different experience may not be able to. And so how to, as a painter, so, you know, that's a, a good question about, uh, like, so Amy Sherald, who's from Columbus, who painted uh, uh, Michelle Obama's, Michelle Obama's portrait. official portrait. You know, when she was a little girl, um, she visited the Columbus Muse- Museum. Jerry Davis took her in her class to the Columbus Museum, and she saw a painting of mine called Object Permanence. And it's a large painting of the house. It's in the Bo Bartlett Center. And there's people standing around. It's a family portrait, but the central figure is an African-American male. And um, she saw that as a little girl, and the story that she tells is that that's what made her realize she could be a painter. And she saw that painting and realized that she saw someone like her and she didn't know whether I was white or black or whatever. And so, you know, she saw that and said, you know, I, I can do that. I want to do that. So um, we can, you know, everybody has a story. And so what's important is to, whatever your experiences are, is to tell your own story. And so that's what she's done. She sort of took that influence a little bit, and she's told her own story with it. And we have difficulties. We have suffering. We have uh, difficult things in our life. And we put that all into the work. And it's just, it's part of the story. And then people can connect to it. They can say, oh, I'm not alone in the world because, you know, this person has suffered and this is what they've, they've created with it. And I feel that feeling. And so I'm not alone because we, there is suffering and there's a way that we can move through that suffering. The last two years of COVID have changed everything. They've changed the way journalists work. They've changed the healthcare industry. They've changed the political dynamic. 
How has COVID changed you and your industry? Um, I think artists in particular are particularly fortunate in this time because um, I didn't do anything different than I always did. I mean, I, I would go into the studio every day and actually I was able to close the door and had the right to say to people, no, I can't do that right now. You know, people would call or email and want me to do something. Like, nope, I'm painting and I can't go out. And so there was extreme productivity in the art world. Uh, I think musicians found it, uh, painters found it. And it's different for every person. Some, some people need more social activity and more. Uh, but <coughs> many artists that I know were extremely productive because they're basically introverts in the first place. I mean, you can't spend all day by yourself in a studio uh, painting and not talking to anyone unless you are a version of an introvert. So um, it was it was a, a dream for, for artists to be able to be alone <laughs> and, and not have to be distracted by outside things. Uh, and that said, you know, given all the, the uh, difficulty and the, the heartache and, and loss, of that time, um, it was still um, a very productive time, and 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 that get in, got into the work as well. I mean that 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 sense of loss got into the work. What did it do to the value of your work? Did your you're in galleries right now? What's the last? You just did a show up the East Coast, right? Yes. Um, what did COVID do? Did it depress the value, or did it increase the value of your work? This is a good question because this is a larger question. This is a larger question about where the art world is now and where it's going with uh, NFTs and uh, uh, the sense of um, whether there's even objects involved or not or whether it's just concept. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're buying uh, non-fungible tokens to, to be just an image, which is just a file like a JPEG or a digital image, which may have been created digitally or it may just be a file of the image. And people are buying those, not the actual paintings. Um, so, you know, uh, whether objects like paintings continue, I, I assume they will, but it's a very interesting time for, for visual artists because uh, there's so much changing so fast right now. So you're saying that conceptually a concept of this may be worth more than the actual painting? They, that's what's happening in the in the. That's art world. nuts. <laughs> that's what's happening in the art world. But people don't want to own stuff. I mean, younger people don't want to own stuff. Why would they want to own stuff when they can just have the image of the painting right there on their phone, you know, on Instagram or anywhere? So, uh, what you're doing is your your artists are selling. Sometimes the artist sells the artwork with with an NFT, or they sell them separately. But um, you know, I always have owned the copyright of all of my paintings, even if they're in the center or a private collector. I still have the copyright. Uh, and so with NFTs, you can just change it just a little bit and sell another version of it and sell another version of it. I'm not doing NFTs at this point, but, you know, you may. Uh, Betsy is. My wife Betsy is doing oh. an NFT. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You say younger people don't want stuff, and you can see that when you go into antique stores in this community <laughs> and others because Aunt Bess's antique cuts or all of your grandmother's china is sitting in there because the kids don't want it. Right. Kids don't want the stuff that you and I may have seen as incredibly valuable because, my God, that was my grandmother's Christmas china that I ate Christmas dinner on every day, every year as a kid. Mm -hmm. 
young kids, the younger generation doesn't see the value in that that you and I may have, right? Right, and I think that I mean there's there's a lot of reasons for that, but one uh, perhaps is I mean we we are meaning seeking creatures. That's what we are. We're trying to find meaning in things. That's what we do as as humans. We we, we want to find meaning. And Most so, of us. <laughs> hopefully. We find some version of it, whether it's in our tribe or whatever. We are, we are trying to find a sense of purpose and meaning. Um, so there's different ways to do that. Uh, but, but one is to find meaning in objects. And, um, and you know, I've, I was, I've always put extreme meaning in objects. And so I, I, I'm particularly, I, I like objects. Um, you paint objects. I do, I do. And I, I think that it's a part of the nature of the universe. I mean, objects are. And so if we just get too much in our head or too conceptual or too, um, then we, we lose uh, track, we lose touch with some part of our actual nature. And we have to be careful that we don't assign meaning uh, randomly. And I think that's one of the things that we are, where we are in the world right now in some regards where... Um, Truths and facts don't matter anymore. You know, it's like it's it's almost like uh, um, there's. I say not a I truth. say so. It is. <laughs> yeah, and it's a complicated thing, and I mean, I think we have to deal with the complexity of that, and that's important to deal with the complexity of that. But we have to. Um, I I think that there is an, on some level some certain scientific empirical truths that uh, would be good if we could commonly agree upon. It would be good. I mean, certain things do exist. I mean, the earth exists, gravity, whatever gravity is, exists. There is a ball of fire up there. Yeah, yeah. There, so, you know, we, we, we should be able to agree on some of these things, but I think as things get more and more um, uh, conceptual that perhaps we are, we've sort of brought it on ourselves. We have brought it on ourselves that there are different silos and everybody's living in their own reality. We, we have brought that upon ourselves for better or for worse. Definitely have. Because all truths are relative. Some relatives even speak the truth. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, we're near the end of this. And when I get toward the end of this, there's one thing I'm going to come back at the very end and give you a chance to talk about your radio show a little bit. But toward the end of this, I turn, I call it turn the tables. and um, You get to ask me a question. and I think you've listened to a couple of the shows. I think they get, depending on who's asking, it can get tricky. But uh, turn the table. Then you, I've been asking you questions for nearly an hour. What you want to ask me? Um, you you interview a lot of people. You've been in the TV business now for a while. You were in the newspaper business for a long time, doing interviews. Um, the um, nature of humanity. Do you do does do you, do you have hope? Do you have uh, do you have hope in where we're heading and what what's going on? Or, or do you not have hope in where we're heading and what's going on? I knew you'd go deep on me. I knew you would. Uh, I couldn't get out of bed if I didn't have hope. Hope, hope to me, whether it's hope there's going to be a great day for your family or it's hope that you're going to get a good story or, you know, just, I, you know, you say we're, you say we're see, 
creatures that seek meaning, I'm going to go deep on you and say, if it weren't for hope, we never could look for that meaning. If you were hopeless, what's the point in looking for meaning? I've got hope. I've got hope. You know, one of the cool things is I've got great kids, great family, great grandkids. I see the hope and I see the promise in the future in those guys. Uh, lucky to be married to my best friend. That's something that you know as well. It's a beautiful place to be. But I work with an amazing group of young people here at Channel 3. We've got the veterans. We've got Phil Scoggins and Teresa Whitaker and Bob Jeswall and people that have been around for a while and kind of like me have been on the path. But we have a 30-year-old news director. We have a lot of young reporters from all over the country. we got guys like Dylan Hansen, who's our director here today. We've got all these young people, and that's my hope. I mean, they're smarter than we are. They're way, way smarter than we are. They think they know as much as we do, but sometimes you have to remind them they don't, and that that turns into when it becomes almost a parental relationship, and that's not good either. Uh, but <laughs> no, but I've got hope in this. In this, I mean, I'm working with kids that I know are going to be on ESPN. I know are going to be on networks. You know, I mean, I'm working with kids I have, I mean, that are so enormously talented. And I get to go to breakfast with them. I get to sit there and talk to them about things. So I'm seeing that. As long as they don't lose hope, I'm not going to lose hope. They haven't lost hope yet. Does that make sense? That's yeah. a stupid answer. but No, it's not. No, that makes perfect sense because that is where the hope, hope lies. It lies in, in the future and in the um, foundational aspects of those who are going to carry the future. As long as we don't blow up the planet before they get there. That's the exactly. And that's where <laughs> their sense of not having hope could, could come in. So, you know, there's certainly responsibility. I mean, we have total freedom here in America and, you know, with freedom comes responsibility and it's a responsibility of a lot of choices that we, hard choices that we, um, need to, need to make. Amen. Uh, one thing before we wrap it up, you do a radio show on Columbus State Radio Station. Talk a little bit about that because I, I, I know people that are listening to this may want to listen to your radio show, your weekly radio show. Yeah, there's so many things going on. I mean, really so many things. We, we have the Bo Bartlett Center, which has a, a great exhibition coming up called Compaterra, and that's an a exhibition of uh, couples, uh, um, artist couples. Oh. Uh, so that's a great show that's coming up next month. Right now we, we actually at the center have the um, uh, a show called Mirror Mirror by Jonathan Waltz from the Columbus Museum uh, curated that. We have the uh, faculty exhibition from CSU, Columbus State's College of the Arts. And uh, so these are shows that are ongoing. And uh, then I have the radio show, which is at CSU, WCUG, and that's Saturday and Sunday mornings from uh, 9 to 10 are the new shows. That There's a whole block from 8 to 11 where we play uh, recycle shows. And then um, we're making f films. We're, um, you know, working with the homeless, uh, with Homeless Where the Art Is. Uh, that show, Homeless Where the Art Is show, is coming up this next week at the Highland Galleries here on 2nd Avenue. So, um, you know, and then there's, there's life, there's um, future 
stories to be written and paintings to be painted. I have a show uh, at the Gibbs Museum in South Carolina coming up in the fall, and um, um, a show in New York next next year. So there's so many things going on. We stay, stay super busy, and I, and I actually still want to do an art spot here at the at the TV station. I'll talk, I'll introduce you to Connor and let you make the pitch. Okay, good. Um, one thing, and it, might as well go back to the esoteric. Uh, you can do between now and the time you leave this world, you can do one painting you haven't done. What is it? I don't know it yet. But it is uh, every every endeavor, every effort, you know, from what I eat to um, what I write and um, how I live and how I interact with other people, every action is geared toward trying to find that that one image so the pinnacle's still out there totally out there and it's it's a goal and it's you know one could say it's a a fantasy to want to try to create a masterpiece but basically what you want to try to do is to bring everything you've got all your experiences everything into your art and into the, the work that you make and what you bring into the world and we all want to do that we want to perform at our very best our very best at our peak so um, whether you're an athlete or a, a musician or a painter or a journalist, a journalist exactly, you, you want to bring everything to, and, and just be the best you can because that's all that we can ask is, is to do the best you can and to make the world a better place. Amen. Um, this is the point where I have to drive us out of here and I always go off a cliff on the things I've got to do at the end of the show so you'll get to see how radio is not done. You can watch the Chuck Williams Show Tuesday night, 7 to 8, here on WRBL.com, live streaming. Streaming, You can catch it after that. You can get us on all the traditional podcast places, Apple, Spotify, iHeart. Uh, we hope you catch it there. It's, there's a backlog now of a, a, a book of about 46, 47 shows. So there ought to be something to your taste if you just start searching and looking. Social media. We all do social media. Twitter, at Chuck Williams. Facebook, Chuck Williams, WRBL. And Instagram, Chuck Williams, 0999. You've been listening to Bo Bartlett. Bo is an artist, extremely talented artist here in Columbus. And he used a word a few minutes ago, and I'm going to take us out of here using his word. Uh, Bo talks about his tribe. It's been an honor over the last few years to sort of come in and out of Bo's tribe. It's a, it's a fascinating place to see the people in the world that Bo has assembled here in Columbus and up in Maine. But to see Bo's tribe, it's, it's, always, it's nice to be a part of that tribe every now and then. Bo, thank you for being here. Thank you, Chuck. Love and light, y'all. <laughs>